Podo. It's May 1812. In the first few months of the year, France has invented the metric system. The Russians have moved the Finnish capital from Turku to Helsinki, and Louisiana has been admitted as the 18th member of the now United States. But we're in Britain, or London to be more exact. 1812 is a tricky year for the United Kingdom. In the midst of the Napoleonic Wars, it will also see a war with America that will culminate in Robert Ross's forces burning down the White House. In Portugal, Wellington has sieged and seized the bastion of Badajoz from the French. The king, George III, is now all but blind and secluded by insanity in Windsor Castle, leaving his son, who would a few years later become George IV, to rule in his stead. But all that is just set decoration to the scene we are to witness in May 1812, May 11th to be precise, and the House of Commons to be preciser still. The Prime Minister at this time is a pious little man named Spencer Percival. His premiership, which would last only two years, is now largely remembered for what happened that day in May 1812 when he set foot in the House of Commons lobby. There, in that hallowed space of British democracy, a gunman confronted Percival and shot him in the chest with a pistol from point-blank range. In doing so, he fired Percival into British history as the only Prime Minister to be assassinated. This is the town that didn't stare. I'm Nick Hilton. As a political leader, being assassinated is something of a mixed event. Certainly it has its drawbacks in the short term, but it's also an historical shortcut to greatness. In America, there is a sense that John Kennedy and Abraham Lincoln hold hands through time, ignoring one suspects the clawing grass of McKinley and Garfield, who were also assassinated. A fraternity born of their grisly demises. There is a sort of trite sensibility that might imagine them sharing a clubhouse in heaven with Gandhi and Martin Luther King. And perhaps Percival would be lurking in the corner, nervous to approach their table, or at the very least, passing around a tray of canapes. This rather unassuming man, elevated to a table of martyrs, all because his government wouldn't offer a gun-wielding crank restitution for his imprisonment in Russia. The best thing about Spencer is he's an amazingly unremarkable prime minister, certainly. That's the voice of Nick Hall, a comedian who performed as Spencer Percival in a one-man show at the Edinburgh Festival. He's born in the 1760s. Spoiler alert, he dies in in 1812. He's just a classic straight down the line, conservative, comes from landed gentry, not too big, not massive aristocratic family. I think his grandfather bought a peerage a few years before and through that he has some titles, some lands. He grows up in, in South London. And then it's the classic Tory, really goes to Eton, then goes to Cambridge, becomes a lawyer, very unremarkable, becomes a lawyer. And then around 30, lo and behold, his cousin, who was the MP for Northampton, stands down and lo and behold, Spencer gets the job. He rises up through the ranks as a Tory MP. The Tories are in power, unsurprisingly, then. And lo and behold, enters the government. And then in 1809, becomes prime minister. And all the way through that, he is, yeah, the dictionary definition of unremarkable. His portrait is unremarkable. He is unremarkable. There is nothing about his life story that really sticks out. There are certain, there are definite positives to him, and maybe we can reappropriate, relook at what he did in his life and under his prime ministership. 
and take value from that and not just how it ended because that's ultimately the thing that that colors everything well let's talk about that then so the, probably the worst day of his life but the only day that anyone ever remembers <laughs> what happened <laughs> yes well he, he'd been in prime minister for three years so there's debate on the blockade of napoleonic blockade of, of trade ships the commons is in uproar Spencer's trying to force through legislation on that. And, and just after 4pm, he's summoned to appear before the House of Commons. He's in Downing Street. And so he, he does. He, he strides out of Downing Street, walks down into the Palace of Westminster. The Palace of Westminster is very different then. It's before the sort of neo-Gothic building that we all know now. Oh, there's no security there. There's no police. The police haven't been invented yet. They won't be invented for another 10 years or so. People just come and go, petitioning, labouring. And he walks down there, walks through Parliament, into Central Lobby, and then walks towards the door that leads to the House of Commons to enter the chamber. And as he does so, a man who's been waiting there for about 15 minutes, very unremarkable man, stands up, walks towards him. And then when he's three feet away, just as he's about to walk through the door, pulls a gun out and shoots him in the chest. Spencer collapses to the floor. The man sits back down immediately. Spencer's last words are murder, oh God, murder, or I am murdered. One of those, not the most prophetic last words, although they are accurate. He's taken next door to an office of the clerk. A surgeon is summoned. The surgeon examines him and realizes that the musket ball has gone straight through his chest and obliterated his heart. And then he's um, pronounced dead. And his accuser is then uh, kept in, in, in Parliament. Everything's in uproar. It kicks off everything. It all goes crazy. People are wondering who this guy is. The country's in a febrile time as it is. There's a lot of unrest in the country. Everyone's a suspect. The Luddites are coming in, destroying factories as the Industrial Revolution creeps in. Places like Liverpool and Bristol in uproar because slavery's been abolished. There's an economic and social revolution. There's revolutionaries. France is a revolution in, in revolutionary France. Who's done it? You know. And there's this man. And everyone's like, who did it? I can go on and say who did it, if you would like, just to complete the puzzle. Yeah, go on, spoil it for us. Who did it? Well, it's just, it, unfortunately, it's none of those things. I mean, it, it's a man named John Bellingham. It's a man with mental health issues, I think, is what he'd be diagnosed of now. He was a businessman. He went out to Russia 15 years before, lost a lot of money in exporting goods up in Archangel in the north. Lost money in basically in a business deal. And basically went to the British government, the representative there, and said, oh, I think you should get involved. And the British government, the representative was like, well, it's a civil matter. It's a business case. We don't get involved. And he stuck in Russia complaining and complaining, got thrown in jail by the Russian czar, by the government there for a year or two, which embittered him, came back home. And he never let go of it. And it festered. Wrote loads of letters, wrote to the prime minister, the government. He wrote to the king. And everyone said, oh, whatever you can do, take matters into your own hand. We can't help. And it just festered with him. And in his own twisted mind, he thought that the government were to blame for not getting him recompense. And as the prime minister of that time, not even when it was an issue, when it had happened those years before, Spencer Percival deserved to take the blame for this. And so he purchased a gun, practiced shooting in Richmond Park. And then that morning, he just went to the House of Commons, sat there in, uh, in Central Lobby. And, and when his moment came, he shot him. He said he felt bad afterwards, but he understood it. And he went to trial. The trial was the week later. He believed he'd get off. He said, it's simple. I couldn't do anything else. Once the jury understand my situation, they'll sympathize with me and understand that it was a proportionate act. And he honestly believed that he'd get off. It took 12 minutes for the jury to find him guilty. And he was uh, hung the week afterwards outside Newgate Prison. He, he said, I, I'm sorry for what happened, but I, I'd do it all again. It's such a British assassination. We only have one. It's thoroughly British. It's quite mundane. There's no grassy knoll, no second shooter. You know, however much you might look for them, there's nothing glamorous about it. 
and the murderer, the first words he did after doing it were apologizing. The reason we're talking about Spencer Percival on a podcast about East Grinstead is because back in 1790, Percival was secretly married in the ruins of St. Swithin's, the church that looms over the town. Yes, it's rather fun, and there's nothing in St. Swithin's to tell you about it at all. We haven't got a statue or a plaque or anything. That's the voice of Caroline Metcalf, a local historian and guide at St. Swithin's. Spencer Percival, and he married Miss Jane Wilson. And the gist of it is that Jane Wilson's father thought that Spencer Percival was an impecunious lawyer, a younger son of a second marriage who was never going to come to anything. So he didn't want his daughter to marry Spencer Percival. Jane Wilson stayed in East Grinstead with someone called Thomas Wakeham, who was a local lawyer. And at this time, the church had fallen down. So by tradition, they were married in the ruins of the church. And some think that there was a blacksmith's shed and they were perhaps married in that blacksmith's shed in among the ruins. And it had to be by special license. They went on to have six sons and six daughters, which suggests that uh, it might have been a very happy marriage. And so, with that marital connection, the events of 1812 must have shocked the residents of East Grinstead. Coincidentally, in the same year, three and a bit thousand miles away across the Atlantic, Benjamin Henry Latrobe, who designed the Capitol building in Washington, was being charged with redesigning the White House porticos following their untimely incineration. Latrobe, who was born here in Britain, had produced two major works in England before heading to America in 1796. One was Ashton House in Forest Row, which became a preparatory school where Boris Johnson, amongst others, cut his teeth, though in June 2020 it shut its doors for the last time. The other was Hammerwood Park, also in East Grinstead. The house is currently owned by David and Anne Noel Pinniger, and I was at school with their son. My occasional visits to the house were breathlessly exciting. The place has a sort of crumbling majesty. Bits of it were so badly dilapidated that they were roped off, and the livable quarters oscillated between really grand Georgian rooms and the clutter of a family crammed into the more practical spaces. The house has a fascinating history, from Latrobe through to the present day. So I dialed up David and Anne Noel to talk me through it. The first owner of the house commissioned Benjamin Latrobe, who went on to design the White House and the Capitol in Washington, to build the house, we think very much as a country idyll, and he had a um, wife and three children, and a drawing that the architect did depicted John Sperling standing at his front door with a hunting gun and a hunting dog by his side, and his wife and three children sitting in paradise underneath a tree. This is rather the same sort of separation in terms of man goes hunting, wife stays at home and looking after and looking after the children that you often see nowadays with men who go off to the golf course and the wives who go shopping. And so th- this is in the late 18th century, I guess. If you were to give me a sort of potted zoom through the next almost 200 years, 150 years, bringing me up to when you purchased the house, kind of what are the kind of key moments in the, in the building's history? Well, uh, the first key moment was that Latrobe took on a job as surveyor of buildings to the London police force. And this seemed to be rather a nebulous sort of job. And in actual fact, it was nebulous. It was the cover for SOE operations. And Latrobe was the paymaster of the country's spy network. 
necessary for knowing what was going on in France across the continent and the French Revolution and the war with France and so on. But the problem was that the Home Secretary, uh, Henry Dundas, was taking a rake off off the building works and Latrobe knew too much. So Dundas had him framed. And as a result of that, Latrobe jumps on a boat to go to America just 10 days before an application to commit him to prison for bankruptcy. Within the next few years, the house came into the possession of the banking family, the Dorian Megans. The house stayed in their family until the 1860s, when it was taken over by another banking family, who were the originators of National Westminster Bank. So this place has been very, very much at the heart of some very, very rich people. And the 20th century saw decline. In contrast to bankers, the owners at the beginning of the century were a priest and his wife, through whom the family had a little bit of money, but they had to mortgage to buy it and so on. And they sold it and it went through a couple more families, diminishing at every stage before it was commandeered by the army during the Second World War. After the war, it was turned into flats. The people in the flats gradually moved out after 20 years, rather moved in, and it was in a pretty uh, interesting condition in the 1970s when the pop group Led Zeppelin bought it. Well, Led Zeppelin were another matter entirely, and they were distracted flying their private 747 around America, doing concerts in New York Times Square and all sorts of other famous events, and they forgot about it, and so it went derelict. And were you in the market for a an absolutely enormous house at that point? Were you looking for one? No, not particularly at all. My mother was a collector of antiques and all sorts of things. And so she had romantic ideas of doing something somewhere as a museum. And I'd inherited my grandmother's house. And uh, that was vaguely comfortable. It uh, was the, uh, the family feeling that I should sell my grandmother's house and buy this. And that was how I dumped myself into it. What was it particularly that struck you about the house and sort of convinced you to, you must have at this point given over quite a large portion of your life to restoring and resurrecting the property. What was it that kind of so captured your imagination? Were you just a big Led Zeppelin fan? No, not at all. At the time, I had just finished my physics degree at Imperial College. And so I had nothing else to do. I didn't have a job lined up. Today's... Uh, university graduates are much more on the ball at having applied for jobs and career-minded things and so on. In the early 1980s, uh, life wasn't quite so pressured in that way. And so, you know, I was just finishing my degree, sort of wondered what to do with my life. And I realised that there were going to be very few other people who would be in that position of having some resources with which to make a start. And the opportunity of no commitments, no family, no job. I was entirely free. I realised that it wouldn't survive another winter. How has it been as a, as a family home, I guess, transitioning from this recording studio derelict into, into somewhere that you have to live with your children and raise them? Has it been an effective family home? Well, I think we've all worked very hard. Yes, it was very, very basic. Yes, it was quite challenging to bring up children We've got three boys. However, I think the the disadvantages were made up for in the advantage of the immense space that we enjoy. And the boys would frequently wander around the quite overgrown gardens at that point 
in the early 90s. And they had the most magical. They tell me now that they are very grateful for the jungles and the nature and for the freedom that they enjoyed. And it's a sort of concept that I think, you know, that the royals are, are trying to promote with fresh air and, uh, and the idea of spending more time outside. So I think we were slightly ahead of the game then. And the rest is history. We're still here. The boys are all committed to the place. What the future holds, we don't really know, but that will be up to them. Visiting Hammerwood as a child was exciting, less for the connection with Led Zeppelin, who owned the property between 1973 and 1982, hoping, it's said, to turn it into a mid-Sussex musical mecca, and instead auto-vandalised it almost to the point of destruction, and more for that intangible sense of glamour that accompanies an unwieldy grand house. Niklas Pevsner, in his book on Sussex's architecture, describes Hammerwood as a demonstration of primeval force, so the infinity of cosmic possibilities naturally ends up with a Palladian country estate. Hammerwood Park is exactly the sort of mansion that you'd expect to be haunted. When I used to visit as a child, it was always a bit spooky, half splendour, half dereliction. You almost expected a tiny Victorian girl to crawl out of the dust, her eyes replaced with great shining buttons. A couple of years ago, I worked for a company and I was in order shop for two weeks. They put me up in a in a hotel where I was working and in the early hours one of the bright light when I looked at the bright light there was a figure of a woman all in white a white dress just like sort of floating in front of the curtains and then she caught the fire from the bottom of her dress going to her head and then it whizzed off in a little white ball and then disappeared. That's the voice of Barry Depp founder of Paranormal Hunters UK. And that image to you was was it kind of crystal clear or was it hazy? It was a solid. It was a solid image of a woman in a. I say it was a white dress she was wearing. Or it might have been a white dress or a white nighty. I don't know, but it was pure white. The whole of her was white, and then you actually see the fire catch light from the bottom of her dress, which is proper fire color, and it rose right up to her face, engulfed her in um, flames, and as I said, then it, then she whizzed off like a little white ball, like an orb, and then disappeared. And so now you kind of you work in the paranormal investigation industry. What do you? What have you found? I mean, what, what you, you regularly go out to people who suspect their house is haunted and sort of try and allay their fears or try and find the ghost. Yes, what we do is um, there's not many groups that do it. There's a lot of groups that are out there. They do like uh, events, but what we do is we go to private home or businesses that needs help, and then basically they call us. They tell us what they've got. They give us a brief description. Then I mull over it what they've and I try and do a bit of research. I don't tell anyone else in the team or our mediums what I find because I want everyone to go in blind. So if someone turns around and says to me, Oh, I've, I've just seen so and so, or someone just said, and then I can actually do a tick on the box that yes, they are true, that, that's what was said. And then we go into there and how we have loads of call outs. East Grinstead, for some reason, is very haunted and we don't know why uh we're the only team that's ever done it last year we did a meet and greet 2019 the lord mayor turned up we had the blessing of the lord mayor and the town council but we do homes and we've been to quite a few we had one not long ago 
where the woman says she sees a figure of a woman and she waves at her in the garden and stuff like that. And we went in there, we got it all on video. We're doing what we call a human pendant where everyone's in a round circle and I'm in the middle and I ask the spirits to come forward and gently just push someone. And people could feel that some, or one person could feel themselves being pushed. But we kept them have the dog barking. And I said to the spirit, can you do me a favor? Can you ask the dog to be quiet? The dog stopped. When I went back over the recording and I asked that question, you hear me ask that question, you hear faintly, yes. And the dog stopped. We had another on that same occasion was packing everything away. There was no recordings out or anything. To my right ear, I was bending down, putting stuff away in the bag. All I heard of little boy's voice saying to me, what are you doing then? Clear as day. But unfortunately, that wasn't on record. But she had a friendly ghost. She had three friendly spirits in there. And that was that was good, and she was happy with that. Where where were these incidents? I, I can't give out the actual dresses because it's under confidentiality, sure. which which we all signed, but it's in East Grinstead. I just wanted to re- know if it was in in the town. Do you think that East Grinstead is particularly haunted? Is that your experience? Yes, yes, we do. We we've done many businesses there at the moment. Middle Row, when we did the meet and greet in the Dorset Arms, we know the Dorset pub is haunted. My medium kept on saying on the night there's a guy downstairs in the cellar and he wants to leave he wants help i said does he said yeah he said he's telling me he was a soldier in world war one come back to shell shock got better they wanted to send him back and he basically shot his brains out in the cellar below the pub barry and his team have been investigating east grinstead for years recording a series of videos purporting to show paranormal activity in a particularly striking piece of film recorded somewhere in middle row a ghostly presence somehow rotates the table. The video is hard to describe. For some reason, it's recorded in almost total darkness, but features a small group of people with their hands placed on a little table, perhaps a bedside table, perhaps a picnic table for condiments, which begins to rotate. Oh, this is too quick. Oh, okay. Well done. Okay. Do we want to go and get someone? I hope that camera's working. The people in the video are apparently totally convinced that they are not pushing the table. But much as I want to give Barry and his team the benefit of the doubt, to say the footage is inconclusive would be slightly generous. In another video, they claim to have caught a chatty poltergeist on tape. Though to me it just sounds like a man whispering the word higher. Listen. I suppose, like most things, belief in the supernatural is a matter of perspective. One man's obvious fakery is another man's compelling evidence. It's all just a trick of the light or a trick of the brain. I've always had an interest in the paranormal and certainly well into young adulthood. I believed in a lot of this paranormal stuff. I'd read books, I'd watch programmes on TV and I, I kind of had an interest in the area. That's the voice of Christopher French, a professor of psychology at Goldsmiths. Professor French heads up the university's incredibly cool-sounding anomalistic psychology research unit. It wasn't really until kind of the early 1980s when I was doing my PhD, which was on a completely different area, someone just recommended a particular book that they thought I'd enjoy. It was called Parapsychology, Science or Magic, and it was by a Canadian social psychologist called James Alcock. And it was the first time I'd ever read a sceptical treatment of any of this material. And it made a lot of sense to me. I thought it, it provided alternative explanations for ostensibly paranormal experiences. 
And I just kind of got hooked from there, really. And what started off then as a kind of side interest, a hobby, has ended up being the kind of main thing I do in my life. You know, it's my primary research interest. It's what I'm known for, if I'm known for anything. And I still find it as fascinating as I did then. So, I mean, I'm particularly interested in um, ghost sightings and the idea of haunted places. So in your kind of anomalistic psychology world, what's the sort of most frequent rational explanation for people who are for instance i I spoke to someone recently who said that he saw a woman in a dress catch fire the fire went up her body which strikes me as being implausible to say the least but um but also not something that you could misinterpret as an actual living woman you know so what's the most kind of common thesis that you arrive at for how people have these experiences there is not a one-size-fits-all explanation if someone was telling me about that i'd want to know kind of what were the conditions under which this took place was it a situation, as it often is, when people think they've had a ghostly encounter, that someone had been in bed, you know, half asleep? In which case, I might kind of explore the possibility that it could be an example of the phenomenon of sleep paralysis. That, that's one of our kind of main areas of research. I don't know if you're familiar with what sleep paralysis is, but basically it's when you're half awake and half asleep. In its most basic form, it's a period of temporary paralysis. Uh, you realise you can't move. It typically lasts a few seconds and you snap out of it. It's no big deal. But you can also have very vivid hallucinations while it's happening. And so someone could quite conceivably think that they've seen this happening at the foot of the bed and it feels incredibly real. I mean, these episodes can be absolutely terrifying, but we do know it's a scientifically recognised hallucinatory experience. So that would be one example. Obviously, if the person said, well, I wasn't in bed, I was kind of, you know, driving down the street in my car, then you'd look for other kinds of explanations. But sleep paralysis would be accounts for a lot of allegedly ghostly encounters. A lot of the time when people think they've experienced something ghostly, they've not necessarily seen anything. You know, I mean, we, our, our kind of stereotypical view of a ghost is that someone sees this kind of full form apparition in front of them. But very often it's not that at all. It can be, say, a very strong sense of presence. You go into a particular room. It just feels that there's somebody else in there with you. Well, again, there are neuropsychological explanations for that phenomenon. It might be that that weird things seem to be happening that you can't think of an explanation for. Objects seem to be moving on their own when you know no one's gone into that room. Again, just because you can't think of an explanation doesn't mean there isn't one. I mean, there's a very nice example I give of this in, in when I do talks on this topic. This was in the news one to two years ago of a, of a chap who had a little workshop in his garden where he'd tootle about and make things. And he was a bit untidy. He would he'd lock the shed up every night and, and go to bed and come back. And, and it had been tidied up. All the little bits and pieces on his workbench had been put back in. He couldn't figure out what was going on. And so with a friend, he set up a video camera overnight. And it was a little mouse. <laughs> this little mouse appeared and put all the little bits and pieces back in his toolbox. Now, you'd never think of that as an explanation in a million years, would you? You know, but that is actually what was happening. And then there's a very, there's a minority of cases that are deliberate hoaxes. And we must never forget that. You know, that that is part of what it means to be human, that people will sometimes just make stuff up for all kinds of reasons. And they do, particularly in this context. The spirit world doesn't just shake the tables and spin the chairs, of Eastern said. It also serves as a guide, bringing stray lost souls to the area. It was very simple, really. We were moving out of London. We had two young sons and we didn't know where to go. So my wife and I were looking for somewhere to go outside London. 
and we take some of our guidance from psychics. So I'm just interested always in the perspective of people who are not grounded in rationality and psychics are not. So one of their suggestions was the place we should go to begins with F. Now that's terrific. That really narrows it down. When somebody mentioned Forest Row, we decided we'd go and meet some people who were living in Forest Row. That's the voice of Keith Hagenbach, a therapist based in Ashurst Wood, just between East Grinstead and Forest Row. Having been brought to the area by these invisible forces, Keith was also a participant in one of Sussex's recent eccentricities. As the millennium struck and planes kept on flying, Keith was standing in a militarised zone on the edge of the town. He was one of the leaders of the self-proclaimed Prawns Revolution, Prawns being the People's Republic of Ashurst Wood nation-state. When they announced that around the millennium that they were going to make Ashurst Wood independent, that immediately appealed to me. On the night of the millennium, they actually set up customs posts and um, people, people coming through had to have permission to come into Ashurstwood. So that kind of launched the thing. Then the, the local paper picked it up and it, I mean, in current parlance, it went viral. And they were dealing with sort of media requests from literally from all over the world. And at that point, I got pulled in because come as a complete surprise to you that uh, I'm quite happy to talk. And so I kind of came in at the, at the secondary stage. And then we had quite a long period during which we were, yeah, a big, a big focus of attention. We were doing, or had done something which, which was kind of crazy. It kind of appealed to people. It was lighthearted. And we came up with various quite creative aspects for it. It uh, became major news, uh, which amazed us. And uh, that went on for quite a long period. So the thinking behind it was that, you know, an early king had come and almost died in Ashurstwood. And I mean, could you talk me through the kind of the story and what the, I obviously realise it was, you know, done with a sense of playfulness, but what was the sort of vague governing principle behind it that you should be exempt from taxation? <laughs> I love it. You fall into the trap that all the media fell into, that there was any kind of rationale at all. <laughs> there was no rationale. It was all about having fun. We, I remember sitting around the table with, the, with uh, Mark and Joe and a, a few other people. I mean, there was absolutely no sense of purpose. There was no sense of there being some kind of uh, historical basis for this. It was all about, it's the millennium, people are getting very serious about this. I don't know whether you remember, but uh, at the time there was fear that something about all computers failing because they were not uh, programmed to handle the change of the millennium. I mean, it all madness. So we just said, hey, wait a minute. We need some madness here. So it's all about fun. That was our agenda. But what makes the real estate of East Grinstead so seductive to ghosts? Surely the natural advantages of being a commuter town, just now on the train to London, are lost on the spirit world. There's an argument that almost every town in England still crackles with the smell of heretics roasting flesh. The bloody misery that is human history taints everything, and East Grinstead is no different. It is said that in the summer of 1556, the midpoint of Mary Tudor's savage reign, three unrepentant Protestants, John Foreman, Anne Tree, and Thomas Dungate, were burned to death. All that's left of them is pavement. The burning of the martyrs took place in the high street, just outside, outside of Broadleys, and essentially was... The, the burning of free Protestant followers at the height of Queen Mary's 
a reign whereby she went round and tried to kind of exterminate this sort of the growing Protestant faith. That's the voice of Jonathan Parrott, manager of the East Grinstead Museum. These three people were rounded up and they were burned at the stake and their ashes are allegedly underneath, buried in the ground underneath the high street and that bit of the land in front of Broadleys. There are three kind of commemorative memorial slabs outside of the St. Swithin's Church to kind of commemorate this, this act. Georgian prime ministers and Tudor martyrs might slip into the mysterious ether where they party with Banquo and Casper. But not all killings are afforded such a romantic streak. Take, for example, the murder of Richard Watson in 1996. Watson was a local businessman, a millionaire, as the tabloid newspapers would label him, who was gunned down in cold blood when returning to his East Grinstead home, or mansion, as the newspapers would have it. His wife Linda, a runner-up for Miss Scotland, you'd be told, on front pages around the country, and his stepdaughter Amanda, the crime's sole witness, were taken into custody and then charged with murder. Well, the, the whole spate of killings in the sort of previous 10 years where the police had immediately suspected the widow, i.e. relatively wealthy businessman being killed, and then the wife suspected them, and quite a few of them turned out to be wrong. Their initial suspicion was the wife and the daughter. And I think the story that I heard at the time and my colleagues heard at the time was it was a matter of money, you know, the widows to, to inherit almost £700,000, although that became disputed and possibly disproved later on. That's the voice of Kim Sengupta, a veteran foreign correspondent who's currently Defence and Security Editor of The Independent. Back in '96, he was a crime reporter, assigned to cover the Watson murder. And do you remember at the time, was it that the public was more interested in this miscarriage of justice, the kind of kind of quite an extraordinary dogmatic pursuit by the police of the of the widow? Or was it were people interested in it because it was this hit in a little rural relatively rural British town where a businessman was just shot dead in his what was the thread you were asked to kind of pursue? I wasn't really asked to pursue anything, but it, what presented itself was very much the latter. It was such a horrible thing to happen in a in a upper middle class area, certainly not with the history of violence. Initially, the public interest was not on miscarriage of justice because the allegations of that miscarriage of justice, of course, emerged later on. Well, I think initially the, 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 it was really the interest in such a dreadful thing happening in such a place. And, and then, of course, what happened was the charges were dropped quite dramatically at the Old Bailey, which then, I think, led to some questions about the whole police investigation. Is this just a kind of typical case of which there are dozens every year in Britain or is this were there unusual elements to this I know that there was you know this idea of a link between Richard Watson and Russia some people try to sex it up a little bit and make it seem like there might have been international conspiracies but was it just run of the mill? It was run of the mill uh, partly because what, what you know points you raised Nick which was that you know this was a, a murder in a very unusual place you know, this wasn't in you know, a killing in you know the streets of South London. This was in a you know very respectable area. So you know that itself made it unusual, thus interesting. And so you know there, there was a, a a tendency to focus investigations on two in these cases, widows basically fitted a narrative. But let's not forget, you know, people tend to get murdered in this country by people they know and sometimes know very well. So the whole concept of, you know, an outside person doing it is, is actually unusual. The Russia thing, well, I mean, we, of course, now see all kinds of Russian links to killings, you know, Infanenko's not killing by attack on Skripal and various others. But at that time, 
Nick, you know, that, that there wasn't a, a huge amount of, of suspicion of Russian committing murders in this country. We looked into the, the Russian link, it didn't really seem to stand up. There was another story going around that he had borrowed money, Richard Watson, of £100,000 from some um, dodgy people, and they were ripping him off, and he was trying to get the money back. But that, again, did not lead to any substantial lead. So there were all kinds of, of, of theories at the time, but the paramount one, still as far as the police were concerned, was it was a killing job organised by widow and, and, and a daughter. After the fiasco with Linda and Amanda, a real suspect emerged. Paul Garfield-Jones, a local antiques dealer, who had been charged with handling stolen property from a break-in at the Watson mansion. Richard Watson was due to give evidence against him at a trial and had already been threatened with a stun gun by two balaclava-wearing assailants. The Garfield-Jones connection had been followed up by police within two hours of the shooting, and officers had found him washing clothes at his house. Yet that link quickly and inexplicably went cold, and the police instead decided to pursue the bizarre hitman charges against Watson's wife and stepdaughter. Garfield Jones was later sentenced to 17 years for an attempted shotgun hit, a contract he had undertaken for the princely sum of £200. To try and solve the mystery of the murder, a job that no one had assigned me, I wrote up and posted it on the subreddit r unresolved mysteries an internet forum for investigators and speculators, amateur sleuths. After a couple of hundred upvotes, a small victory for my weak credit karma, I got an intriguing response. Pretty irrelevant, but I find it kind of interesting that you post this, because a very strange site I frequent, LHOHQ, has made frequent, bizarre references to Richard Watson's murder for reasons unknown. I had always seen his name and just assumed they were making something up. The post came from a Redditor whose username alluded to a well-known brand of petroleum jelly. They only had three posts and had joined Reddit just a few days earlier. The site they steered me to, LHOHQ aka the Laughing Horses Orifice Headquarters, was beyond my explication. Its top posts at the time of discovery were as follows. Multidimensional, fourth dimensional, dynamic, strategic customer services. And nine Angharegun integration, Hefensteps, Mariel, Amazon, the. And... Apu fourteen afternoon of owners of the LHOOQ. And we're all a Margie, and I use that, a community meal if there should be. It was like a shit poster had Frankensteined a bizarre hybrid of a text randomizer and Finnegan's Wake. But hidden there, amidst pages and pages of inscrutable memes, baffling fragments of text and arcane snippets of diverse internet subcultures, were references to the Watson murder. I quote, i.e. a millionaire businessman called Richard Watson as far as an MI6 agent's playing part of murder and how I can add anything to Carter and Watson owned a millionaire businessman called Richard Watson owned a man was flattered thinking that my background working with me to Carter and Richard Watson and was murdered. And i.e. a millionaire businessman called Richard Watson was murdered on 10th of December 1996 as far as I was told he was named Harry. And is that Watson owned a millionaire businessman called Richard Watson? was not even aware he was interested in early 1990-1995. From it is not be thought wrong, though. These sentences, with their insistences on IEs and refusal to conform to ordinary grammatical standards, reminded me of much of modern literature. But what was it trying to say about the murder of Richard Watson? To understand the purpose of LHOHQ, I turned to the detective skills of a friend who I consider to be unusually, almost suspiciously literate in the language of fringe internet trollery. It's either some kind of 
deranged 9-11 trutherism or making fun of deranged 9-11 truthers was his verdict. Some kind of art school weirdos, he expanded. I'm getting a Max Headroom vibe from this. You know that story? I didn't know that story. It happened in 1987 in Chicago as people were sitting down across the city to watch the 9 o'clock news on WGN-TV. Suddenly, the picture went funky and the screen was hijacked by an unknown figure wearing a Max Headroom mask. The perpetrators were never found, but it was just one in a spate of signal hijackings at the time, a period that included the notorious Captain Midnight takeover of HBO to protest their fees. So was this murder an international conspiracy, part tragedy, part meme? Or is this just the effect that the internet has on a simple story? Look at the JFK conspiracy theorists. Is that the fate that would have befallen Spencer Percival if he were a charismatic, celebrity-adjacent world leader? Or if John Bellingham's gun had disappeared, or if Bellingham had denied the crime and himself been assassinated while awaiting the gallows? If East Grinstead is the most haunted town in England, then its ghosts might tell us the story of our nation. Blood spilt over centuries now channeled out in garbled computer code, Taurus hotspots, a suspiciously shaking table. The spirit world now tells us less about those who died and more about those who were left behind, to act as mediums through the centuries, telling their stories, scraping at the fragile spine of truth. It's a surreal form of remembrance. But is it any more dissociated from reality than the faiths, beliefs, superstitions, anxieties that we all harbour? It is the byproduct of a mental atomization, where everything and nothing is important, everything and nothing is sacred. And in humanity's constant battle to believe that there is a greater meaning to this hateful sphere where you can just be shot dead in your own home or burnt at the stake outside a discount supermarket, maybe the ghost of East Grinstead offers some hope that death is not an erasure, that you can walk through time, Percival, the martyrs, Richard Watson, trapped in the past, knocking at the door of the present. Next week, on The Town That Didn't Stare, we'll answer the question that has run through all these stories. Why East Grinstead? This has been episode five of The Town That Didn't Stare, written, produced and presented by me, Nick Hilton. The intro and incidental music is by George Jennings, and the end credits music is by Matt Payne and Ollie Lloyd at Shipyard Audio. On this episode, my interviewees were Nick Hall, Caroline Metcalf, David and Anne-Noel Pinnegar, Barry Depp, Christopher French, Keith Hagenbach, Jonathan Parrott, and Kim Sengupta. This is the fifth part of a six-part series, available on all good podcast platforms. You can find out more about the show on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Just go to at the town pod or visit www.thetownpod.com for episode notes and more information. The Town That Didn't Stare is a Podo podcast. For more information, visit podopods.com. 